True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again everyone, and welcome to the seventh episode of Season 4 and episode 47 of the True Crime Fix podcast. If you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all of the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. Today is an extremely special episode for this podcast, and before I go on, I just want to give you a brief overview of what is going to happen during this show. Long before any of us had ever heard of the coronavirus or COVID-19, it was fair to say that the UK had been in the middle of its own pandemic, and that was one of knife crime. Unfortunately, this is the subject of this episode today. Let me just give you a few brief details from the Office of National Statistics. Between March 2019 and March 2020, Police in England and Wales recorded 46,265 offences which involved a knife or a sharp instrument which could be used to stab someone. That is a 52% increase since 2014. In London alone, 15,928 offences were recorded during the same period. In those 12 months, 256 people tragically lost their lives throughout England and Wales, and 24 of those were under the age of 17. But these statistics do not tell the whole story. An example of how bad things have got in the English capital was demonstrated in the 24 hours starting from midday on the 5th of September 2020 to the 6th of September 2020. During that period, 12 people were stabbed. This includes a 79-year-old man in Peckham on the number 78 bus, five men stabbed in one incident on the Broadway in Bexley Heath, two 17-year-olds wounded in two separate knife attacks at West Ham Underground Station and Abbey Road at Docklands Light Railway Station. Shortly after that, Another 27-year-old man was found in a flat in Peckham, the second incident in the same suburb. A 14-year-old boy was then found with stab wounds to his leg in Lambeth before a further report of a stabbing in the greater London suburb of Northolt. In Brixton, yet another man was found stabbed in the early hours of the morning before the final person of that night being found again in the borough of Lambeth. Fortunately, the media reported that none of these victims had died. 
they were the lucky ones. But knife crime is not a new thing. Let's go back further. Between April 2008 and March 2019, 2,462 people have lost their lives due to knife attacks in the UK. Of those, 87 were under the age of 16. Of those, 71% were male. But what those statistics do not tell us is that there are now, between April 2008 and March 2020, 2,718 grieving families that there are 2,718 groups of friends who have lost a loved one. In this podcast alone, I've told the stories of Molly McLaren, Rana Faruqi, Lee Harvey, Sadie Hartley, Sam Caulfield, Josh Hansen, and Stella Domador Kuzma, all of whom were stab victims and, alas, the list will not end there as I already know of two more cases after today's, which will feature a knife as the choice of weapon. So why is today's episode so special, I can hear you asking. Well, for those of you who are massive fans of the Harry Potter franchise like I am, you'll be familiar with the character Marcus Belby in the Half-Blood Prince film. The nephew of Damocles Belby, the noted potioneer, who developed the Wolfsbane potion. It meant that all of the other professors put Marcus on a pedestal, expecting greatness from the young boy. There was only one issue, and that was that Marcus really couldn't care less about it. The person who played Marcus in the movie was an aspiring actor by the name of Rob Knox. He had already had a taste of the silver screen, having worked on King Arthur with his brother Jamie, but more on that a little later. Today, I'll be telling his story. A truly remarkable human being, according to everyone who knew him. Rob lost his life in an attack on the 24th of May 2008, and a close friend of Rob's, Aaron Truss, has just directed a documentary about Rob's life. The Rob Knox story is due to be released soon and when it is, it is a must watch as you'll both laugh and cry uncontrollably throughout. In my opinion, it is a true work of art. I'm incredibly thrilled, however, to tell you that I'm collaborating with two of the best podcast hosts around to make sure that yet another young man has not lost his life in vain and ensure that every aspect of his story is covered. Chantelle, who is the creator and host of the Lady Justice podcast, and Emily, who is the creator and host of the Students' Verdict podcast, and myself, will be collaborating for a special three-part episode about Rob, and all of the episodes have been released today. This show will go into depth about Rob's life, and will contain interviews with his father Colin, as well as close family and friends. Chantel's show will then go into depth about the night that Rob lost his life and the attention that the media gave the case afterwards. Emily will go into detail about the trial and the aftermath. All three shows will cross over, but to hear what an amazing person Rob was, 
I highly recommend you listen to all three. As a mark of respect to Rob, his family and his friends, none of these podcasts will name the killer. He will only be referred to as the suspect or the defendant. Just to say as well, thank you to the band Taxi Joe, who have provided all of the original scores for this week's podcast. Before I start, I would like to introduce my guests. Hi everyone, my name's Colin Knox. I'm speaking on True Crime Fix podcast. I'm the father of Rob Knox, who was the Harry Potter actor that was stabbed to death in 2008. He was my son, and unfortunately he was taken away. Hello, I'm Aaron Truss, and I'm the director of Knox the Rob Knox Story. Rob Knox was a very close friend of mine who was unfortunately killed in a knife attack in 2008, not long after appearing as Marcus Belby in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. For the past two years, myself, Rob's family and friends have been working around the clock trying to produce his life story in a 50-minute special. It is my honour this week to say, this is your true crime fix. I'm your host, Steve. And this episode has been written in memory of Rob Knox. Robert Arthur Knox was born on the 21st of August 1989 at the All Saints Hospital in Chatham in Kent. He was born to Mother Sally and Father Colin. In March 1991, brother Jamie was born and the family became four. The first question that I asked Colin was... What did he remember about the night that Rob was born? It's an experience you don't forget because at that time there are two people that are in the family, which is yourself and your wife. And you go through emotions. The the husband feels pretty redundant because the wife goes through the pain, but the husband can't really do much apart from hold a hand, give her assurance. And when she was in labour, I remember going out to, I think, a balcony and looking at the sky and saying, I'd like to do more to help Sally. She's got the pain. I felt there's nothing I could do. I, I felt pretty redundant until I went back, and the midwife was about, I don't know, 16 stone. <laughs> and uh, I had to have one of the Sally's legs over my shoulder, and the midwife had the other leg over her shoulder. And it's going push, 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 and women come out with some retorts that shouldn't be published and so she was doing what she did and uh, all of a sudden there's now a third member of the family the child and it's like pink like the wrong color it was a strange color pink and you just like everything just changes you're so emotional you're so happy you're so proud you're looking at your wife to make sure she's okay, looking at the midwife and making sure that her responses are in accordance with things being okay. And to see that child for the first time it is an experience that can't be equaled because there's there were two, now there are three. And it was a, a happy day in my life. And when we took Robert away from hospital, we took them home. I remember once we got back into our house, I, I took him into the back garden and cradled him in my arms. And I, I said, Robert, welcome to our family. I will love you, always love you and take care of you. And I always remember those words. 
I made that promise to him that I would protect him. But unfortunately, down the line, something happened and I couldn't protect him. But yeah, Pr a proud moment being a father and a parent. And there's there's no rehearsal for this. It's something that you do instinctively. Now, my, my, my parents, um, they weren't tactile. I don't think I ever heard them say they love me, either dad or mum. Okay, that's the way it was back in the day. I was born in 53, so that was way back. But I remember my mum saying to me, when she found out that uh, we were about to have a child, and I think we knew it was going to be a boy, she said, make sure that your child is not only your child, but he's your friend. That means you're not just a father figure that wags your finger and said, be away with it. You've got to sort of embrace them and their world in your world. So you, you have to, I probably would have done that anyway, but that's good advice from my mum. God bless her, she died two years ago. But they, they were good words to come from my mum. And I've remembered those, always will do. And I, I would say that to anyone that's listening on, on your podcast, that if you are about to engage on um, having a family, embrace them, love them, look after them. We then spoke about what Rob was like as a youngster and how the family dynamic changed when Jamie was born, including a story about a plastic bat. I always thought that Rob will be a, a kid that always stood at the back, not go to the front, be reserved. And I was worried about that. I don't want an aggressive son, but I want a son that was confident. I think in the first four years, I was, I was a bit, not worried, but concerned that he, he may be not the type of person that, that, that wants to go and do things, be up front and <clears throat> be at the front of the queue and, and, and see what's going on, you know. Um, but that, that changed uh, when we went to Paris for Disney. I think he must have been about four or five or something. And he started going to the front to watch. He wasn't at the back saying, OK, I'm at the back. He, I don't want him to be a bully or, or to push people, but he made sure he got there early. He, he then started getting more involved, got more confident. And I, I was happy about that because I've seen a transformation from a child that is learning on his own course. He, I think he was finding his way. But equally, with the connection with Jamie, I used to travel to London on King's Ferry coaches. There's a guy that I met. He come from, I think, Kuwait, and we talked a lot. And he had this video camera. I said, well, can I borrow it? Rob was three or four. So he would, that would have been 92 or something. So I, I got this video camera and put it on top of the TV, connected it to the TV so the kids can see themselves on camera. But it's being recorded. So we used to let it play. You'd be out in the kitchen cooking or doing something. And I didn't realise what had happened until I'd reviewed the tape. And what Robert was doing, Jamie was uh, 18 months younger. I remember him saying these words, but didn't relate to what was going on. And Robert was going, Charlie Chew, Charlie Chew. And I went, at the time, I went, oh, that's sweet. When I reviewed the tape, it's actually thrashing him with a plastic baseball bat. This guy, Charlie Chew. Char Every time you went Chew, he was hitting him over the I know it's a bit naughty, but he was just looking at the camera like, look at me, I'm hitting my younger brother. <laughs> he wasn't he wasn't meanful, it's playful. It is he heard no sort of screams from Jamie. It's just the fact that it's just Rob's face and Charlie too. 
And when I was cooking, uh, you know, I think in the kitchen somewhere, I could hear the words. And I thought, oh, that sounds sweet. Charlie, too. He sent me a little sing song. No, he wasn't. Robert was very mischievous. Robin and Jamie, despite what I said about Charlie Chew, um, they'd done everything together. Taekwondo, acting, filming, parkour. They were friends, which is, and I think Jamie alludes to that in, in the documentary, that it sounds strange, but we were friends, and, and they were. They'd done everything together, apart from drinking, but you couldn't do that because he was too young. But. But filming, uh, the times that my camera went missing. I'm like, Robert, you seen my camera? No. <laughs> He'd been using it. <laughs> I, I think what we done as parents was to make sure that we brought our children up in, in the right way. Be respectful to other people. Have a good time. Don't mess with anyone. Keep safe. All the usual stuff we say as parents. And they, they pretty much understood all of that. Because Robert used to, if I had something to say as a parent, I had to adopt a way of speaking to my son that I wasn't aware of because you have to grow as a parent. The kids grow and there has to be some rapport there. I'm not signing a bit of a struggle to get through to Rob. And I said, listen, Robert, can, can I just say something? I'm going to say something to you. Now, if you can just not say anything, once you've heard what I've said, then let me know what you think. Which, end of the day, he wouldn't get his way because what I'm trying to do is say, I'm going to talk, you will listen, you will understand, you will have a response, but I'm going to ignore it because what I'm saying is something they've got to do. It's, it's the way of getting him on board. So rather than two people sitting in the room shouting at one another, it doesn't work. You say, okay, I will talk, you listen, then you will talk and I will listen. But I will still make the same judgment that I was going to make in the first place. By wanting him to understand as an adult what I'm saying to a young person, I, I taught them life with an imaginary character. My mum was called Moon Doggy. So the kids would go up for the bath, do their teeth, get in the gym jams, lay in bed, and then I would read from their favourite book, or I would I had to create a new story every night. That was hard work, but it was fun. I used to sit on the floor, they were in bed, and I, we used to talk about matches, getting into strange people's cars, crossing roads, whatever it was. Moondoggy was the central character in the story. Moondoggy went out on the road. you think you should have done that? No, no. Now, I hadn't told them. They have told me. So the psychology I was using is don't force it down their throat, bring in a, a, a third person, like Moondoggy, and then Moondoggy had a story, and they would listen to Moondoggy's story and see the relativity of it. Um, so I, I used that to educate them, rather than just thump it down their throats. And, and it worked. I mean, I used to travel home from London, as you say, on King's Ferry coaches. Time ago, I was absolutely tired, you know. And it was, you know, bath time, teeth time, gym jams, bed. And I used to sit there sometimes with no clue in my head whatsoever. <laughs> they was expecting another Moondoggy series. Or scenario and I went right okay then <laughs> what am I going to say <laughs> but you do you, you try and sort, because you've done all the basic things about the matches and don't play with electrics play with plugs strange people and that you now got to think beyond that uh, sometimes I just throw like a, a funny sketch in just to make it humorous but at the time I finished they're, they're gone they're asleep there's there's on it
around about that time, we, we weren't well off for money, okay? Uh, be, being young parents uh, with a mortgage, and at the time, I think um, just before that, I, I'd lost my job with a national newspaper. And um, I used to bring home once a week on the way from the, the coach drop-off to the house. I used to pick a curry up, a chicken curry, and I used to share it with them. That was like a special night. So we'd all sit around a plate, <laughs> like two kids and myself, and just talk the chicken curry. And they loved it. I then asked Colin how Rob got his love of acting. Rob and Jamie have always had this weird thing of dressing up. He used to dress up as me. I think it's in a documentary. He's wearing my rain mat, my briefcase, my umbrella in the back garden, and in these cowboy suits and stuff. He loved... He's pretty much like me. He loves to talk, talk and show off a bit, like a showman. Not show off, be a showman. And he loved it. I think what what you have to do with children is to give them an environment where it's a place where they can explore or imagine something. Now, when we moved to Walden Avenue in when Robert was five or six, we used to go to what we used to call the Third Woods, and we used to take the camera and. I used to say, right, let's build a camp. Make out the Germans are coming and they're coming from that way. What do you need to do? So I made it exciting for them. We just have a venture in the woods and, and they will make it like a bivouac or some sort of tent. And they, they loved it. I made a film with Jamie where he was a cyclist in the same woods and he lost his brother, Rob. And I actually, it's the first film I ever shot. And it's pretty good, I must have it myself. But I gave, I gave them that chance to explore their imagination, control, okay, and just made it, made it fun for them. They, they were always up for, whenever, like, uh, the nans come around, it was a party. They, they would put on a show. They would do magic tricks. They would dress up. Like, they would disappear upstairs. And then they would come down with my clothes on or their mum's clothes on or, or something or makeup, disappear. And I must admit, fair play for me. They were quite entertaining. It was, it was, it was good fun. It was good family fun to have a child that loves what he likes to do, and he's is so good at doing it. He has a chance when he goes to an audition to be in something that we all see. Robert, I think in the documentary, Sally alludes to that. that there was the first two jobs, if you call them jobs, acting experiences. Uh, Rob saw it for himself. Um, trust me, I'm a teenager, was one of them. And the other one was the comedy with Danny Harmer. To actually see your son on TV, albeit sort of snippet parts and stuff, it, it, was, it, it was great because they're on a journey they want to be on and you can see how happy they are. They're just wanting to do that and perform in that environment. I've, I've always said to, to my children, I'm not going to make you do anything. You will want to do it. And if I feel it's a safe environment, I'll encourage it. So I never tell them, this is what you're doing. I say, well, what would you like to do? Because I know they will give it 100% if they want to do something they wanted to do. If I order them to do like, you know, carpentry, I might get 20% result. I don't want that. I want them to explore, get involved in an the environment they want to work in. So I'm going to get, for them, 100%. Colin then told me, about how he prepared Jamie and Rob for one of their first major auditions 
and how they had their first encounter with a famous British actor who has since had numerous links to the family. They both auditioned for King Arthur. Robert auditioned for a character called Boz, which was Ray Winston. Jamie was auditioning for a character called Dagonet. We went up into, into the West End of London for the auditions, and auditions, they last forever. They, they carry on and carry on. So I remember a, a previous audition that they'd done where they asked a question, and I gave an honest answer. But with King Arthur, they said, does your son ride a horse? I went, yep. And when Jamie was up, they said, does your son ride a horse? I went, yep. Thank you very much. When we found out, believe it or not, you entered two sons for auditions and they were both given parts in King Arthur. They're supposed to be young children, jousting and sword fighting, learn, learn how to be a warrior at a young age. And what should have happened in King Arthur film, and it was actually put on the editing floor afterwards, was that both Robert and Jamie were, were in it. And what's supposed to happen was the there was a transition where the young knights rode into a smoke cloud and on the reverse side coming out of that should have been ray winston and blah 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 the adult characters because jamie and robert playing the younger characters so I, when i found out that i committed to the fact that they've done horse riding fortunately up the road from me used to live about half a mile there's the stables so we uh, we gave them riding lesson and uh, we got clips of riding on um on a white horse and Jamie on the back of the white horse in King Arthur. We was, was, we was on site for a week um, up in Brecon Beacons. They had their own caravans. There was like little stars and stuff. And there's thousands of people on there. I told a lie <laughs> to give, it a, give them a leg up, basically. In the end, it wasn't a lie because they, they could ride once they got there. So unfortunately, we went to um, the premiere in Leicester Square and all the nights, I think there were about six or seven, in the front row, the film was shown, finished, credits went. There was no Robert and Jamie in there. Robert was beside himself. And there was a, 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 an after party. And we all went there, and, and Robert, was, he got very annoyed. And I pulled him to one side, and I said, Robert, this is a very small industry. Do not get upset. Don't show that you're upset. Have big shoulders and be proud. He said, Dad, I know I've got a lot of money for this, but I'd rather have been in the film and not had the money. That's how passionate he was about his acting. I think he took that on board. And I, I know what he was going through because he went there to see himself and his brother um, and that they didn't see it. But, but so we got some cuts that, that we had and we know they were in it. They got paid for it, but they weren't actually in the finished article. So. I then asked Colin about what Rob was like academically, and he told a story which touched me as an expectant father. The situation with our family was that, that Sally was the larger wage earner. She was an international buyer for a company I won't mention. Um, so therefore, I found myself being sort of single parent home alone with two kids. And I, I, I took them to preschool. I took them to school. And the hardest thing is that when you have never taken them to a place and let go of their hand and released them into other people's company, you're so emotional. I cried 
Okay, I don't mind admitting that. I'm a man, okay, I, I, I mean, mate, I cry. And the first time I took him into this, this preschool, that they showed me where his peg was for his bag and his, and his jacket and whatever. And then he, that, they walk around to the little sand castle place where they do stuff with sand. That was in preschool. And having to let go of that hand and then walk away, it, it was almost like I've, it, I've gone back to a two-person environment. You know, before the keeper's born, there's you and your wife. And then when you release that hand, it's almost like you've lost them. It's, it's been taken away. I know it hasn't been taken away, but they've been with you since birth for four years. You never let go. You've always taken care of them. And now you're letting go. I, I found that emotion not only in preschool, but their first day at school. It's the same, same scenario. There's his peg. There's his name above the peg. That's where he hangs his bag, hangs his coat. And you, you've got a release the hand and walk away it is i've done that right up until the senior school i could say much to drive to school and say oh, yeah with rob with both our, our children we, we we've got a private tutoring to give them tutoring once a week to get them past their exams for senior school and they were both showing great promise well robert was obviously because he was older he was the first person but because of rob's age he was the youngest person in his year group because uh, he was August. So I'm thinking mentally he may be behind the race a bit. But the courage and the thing we heard from the tutor was that he he was he was very learned. He was he was absorbing it all. Unfortunately, Robert took his exam, what we call like the eleven plus, and didn't pass. I was quite amazed. So he went to a school called Kemnell Manor. Now, Jamie passed his exam and went to Beth's grammar school. Now, the reason why I mentioned both schools is because Robert at school was being bullied. He's not a small lad, but he's not an aggressive lad. Uh, I think it was about two or three years into his senior school. <sighs> We've been to the school three or four times, talked to the head of year, told him about our concerns and the next thing I know I think it worked Rob called me on my mobile to say that there were boys throwing tins of drink at him and I said right get yourself home leave straight away then we approached Beth's grammar school and we found out there's a two-week window left for Rob to reset his exams which he did do and he passed thank god and he went to uh, Beth joining Jamie at the new grammar school. So that's that's, that's where uh, Jamie felt happier because his brother was with him. Colin told me then about how Rob was very sporting as a child and how he loved football, rugby and taekwondo. So when, when Rob uh, used to play football at a very young age, there was a conflict because he loved rugby as well. And the football date of playing like a, from a Saturday to Sunday, it changed. So there's now two sports that he liked, but they both operated on the same day. I think it's a Sunday then. So I said to Rob, it's entirely up to you. You make your own decision. Whatever you choose, I'll, I'll support you. It's your choice. He chose rugby. And fortunately, he did. I mean, what happened with me is that I'm, <laughs> I took them to the Cup Rugby Club. And I'm, I'm a type of person that, 
gets a bit fidgety. I, I can't just watch. I've got to get involved. So I took my coaching badge. And I was at Sick Cup Rugby Club for eight years, uh, become deputy chairman and chairman of the men's section. And Robert went to, the family went to South Africa with the rugby club. It was built as like the World Cup for, for young people. And there were two age groups that went, one older than Rob's age group and one us age group. And um, both teams went through and won their finals in South Africa. And I'd say the experience was brilliant. I mean, there was a, a school that, that travelled thousands of miles to take part in this um, uh, festival, rugby festival. And they turned up with virtually no boots, no kit. No. The lads from Sid Cup Rugby Club gave them boots, gave them kit, gave them water. And we, we got a lot of friends out of that because we saw people that are need, were needy. And this was the festival, and I said, you know, how can they travel that far in that van with no air control? And they both teams went there, age groups went there, and they won their respective uh, finals in, in, was it Queen's Park, the big stadium in South Africa? Um, and that was, oh, that was so amazing. It was, we were so proud of what those young kids did under the, the heat situation, you know, the fact they're away from home, you know, they've got the natural surroundings. It, it was a fantastic time. He used to do taekwondo, and I remember being in the back garden one day, being the, the person that holds the gloves up, and he's doing his kicking. Within about one minute, I went, whoa, hang on a minute, slow down, buddy. <laughs> he kicked the life out of my hand. I went, yeah, I think I think better stop now, after one minute. He was, he was, he was, um, it was pretty good. That's what fact. I just found his shirt. He's a Great Britain Taekwondo shirt. Um, and I, I'm loathed to get rid of all his rugby kit and his Taekwondo kit because to me, it feels like I'm giving them away. Some people say, no, break away now. It's been years. Just, just get rid of it. So not get rid of it, but you don't have to keep it. And I'm thinking... If, if I give that away, I'm giving Rub's memory away. I know it sounds strange because I don't often look them, but I know they're there. Rob had a love for Charlton Athletic Football Club, so I asked Colin how this fixation started. Okay, bit of a weird story, this one. Historically, I'm a Mill supporter. It runs in the family. I support them and travelled with my cousin all over the country. Uh, we don't, we didn't win a lot, obviously. <laughs> um, our bogey side was Oxford. But what happened was, when you asked the question about how did he get into action, it was through his, his one of his cousins. Now that person's father is a Charlton supporter, and Robert was very interested in David Beckham and blah blah blah. And um, I, I took, I, I'm going to digress now. I, I took them to Millwall. Uh, versus Liverpool as a friendly and we all have a lot of dockers and they say a lot of adult words let's put it that way right and I sat there with my two sons watching some match and oh my god me as an adult I can handle it but having two kids next year I thought I can't take them <laughs> I can't take them down the cold blow I can't take them <laughs> I can't do that so what well, I haven't spoken to this cousin's dad but uh, he, he said that um, Charlton, I've got reduced uh, ticketing price for um, ticket holders. For... I invested in the first year, Rob and I, 
sat on uh, like on a corner seat, if you like, sort of behind the goal to the right slightly, and he, he totally loved it. And <laughs> I went online and bought him a Charlton shirt. Didn't didn't check the size out at all. Natural fact, it would fit you bit better than it fitted him, right? It was huge, right? It was triple X. I don't know. And and the kids only young, but he still wore it. He loved it. He, he loved going to Charlton. He he loved traveling down over this, and, and you always look at the rat run. We call it the rat run. The best way to get to Charlton from where we used to live. So we devised what we call the rat run. I said, "Should we do the rat run, Mum? Yeah, let's go to the rat run." So we don't get involved with traffic. And we, we would turn up there and, and we would just have a, a, a good father and son in, um, enjoyment, watch the match. We didn't win a lot, but we enjoyed, we enjoyed it a lot. Yes, my history was Millwall. I, people say, but how can you dump the team that you've supported all your life? I said, for the love of my son, it's football. It's a game, it's sport, it's football. I can still follow Millwall. But my, my son wanted to see premiership football. My son loved football. He wanted to go to football. And I'm going to go back to when he was five, or was it four? The first match I ever took Robert to was Gillingham versus Walsall. Um, I don't think he knew what was going on, to be honest. <laughs> but the match resulted in Gillingham losing 1-0. Carl Lightbourne scored the winning goal. And at the same time, that Man United beat Ipswich. Nine one and Andy Coles five, yeah, lucky day. <laughs> it's something I remember. It's it's pointing. It was his first match. Something happened special with Man United, and, and something didn't happen very good for Gillingham. And we we kept that up and and until he was taken. And ever since then, Charlton have been fantastic. Whilst I was talking to Aaron, I asked him about how he met Rob, and what his first impressions were. So Rob used to live not far from where I lived in Chislehurst and um, we grew up in the same area. We used to play on the streets essentially and um, I didn't know him that well. We both happened to join a theatre school uh, called DMB in Downham, South East London. We both wanted to be actors from a young age and that's probably where I got to know Rob uh, for the first time and I think it was our, our love of acting and clowning around that um, that sort of cemented that friendship and we became very close um, not just Rob but also Jamie uh, his younger brother and um, and we were elevated to an advanced drama course um, at DMB and we got even closer and I think from spending a lot of time with Rob we realized, well, we don't have to just do this in theater school. We can go out and get a a video camera and we can shoot our own funny things, our own little movies. And this is pre-YouTube era. So uh, we were doing it just for the love of it. We didn't think anyone was going to see this stuff. So so that was it. And it, we sort of combined our love of clowning around comedy and we'd make little sketches and uh, little mini-series. Um, that no one's ever seen. Um, and eventually that group sort of grew larger and larger as we got more people to help us out. And we'd, we'd used leftover costumes from showcases that our theatre school had put on. And it, it was a lot of fun. And there was something about Rob that really drew me to him. And, you know, as, as a young aspiring actor, 
you tend to think, well, is it just me that has this drive to want to do something? But Rob had the same drive and that really inspired me in turn because you know, there wasn't a blueprint to becoming an actor or getting into the arts. And there was just something about him that was reassuring. It's like, okay, this guy knows what it's all about and I, I want to do exactly what he wants to do. And it wasn't until you know many years later that Rob and I both joined the agency, which, which is a little uh, book uh, that's sent off to casting agents around London and you'd start getting auditions. So we started getting auditions for the bill. We started getting auditions uh, for adverts and little things like that. And eventually, uh, it, it, you know, Rob started getting harder roles, um, you know, less extra roles and more speaking roles on, you know, sitcoms and things like that. And, uh, of course, eventually it led to him getting cast as Marcus Belby in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I then asked them both about Rob's mischievous side, which came across in the documentary. You will first hear from Colin about how Rob nearly got all of his friends kicked out of a house party, and then from Aaron about their ingenious way of getting a late-night takeaway. I think it must have been... I- Maybe like a 16th birthday in our house. We had a sort of five-bedroom house, and it's quite large. So we had like a, a plethora of people, like young bees swarming around the house, you know. And they, I don't know, there must have been 30 kids there, I guess. And rubbed mum Sally. And I sat in what, what I call our computer room, closed the door, and it was like a lot of noise going on. So I think I caused to go in to say something. And I went in there and went, like a dad does, da 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 da. As I walked away, I heard. <laughs> so I turned around. I said, "Who was that?" And not not one person blinked. They just everyone stared at me. I went, "I I'm now giving a lecture. I don't want people coming to my house and dissing me. That is out of order. All of you, you're wrong, right?" And it turned out to be Robert. <laughs> I'm blaming every other kid that's in there. And I found out later on it was Rob. And he said, "Sorry." Um, but I was, wasn't too happy at the time, to be honest. <laughs> I've got all these young lads thinking jolly big, and I thought, that's, that's discourteous. You don't do that in my house. I've invited you to our house for a party, and you are all sitting there and won't own up to it. <laughs> but Robert actually was stone-faced, like, didn't say a word. But he owned up because he, he didn't want his uh, friends vilified. So he turned out okay in the end, but it's one of those sort of, I don't know why I remember that, but it was, when I look back on it, it was funny. <laughs> it was cheeky Robert. He wasn't, he, he wasn't a horrible person. He just had this cheeky side to him, and he had a lot of confidence. Remember I talked about in Paris, and, you know, with Disney, he, he changed at the age of four or five to become that more sort of confident person. But now, to be honest, Robert, I must admit something, Robert, is a better person than no level B. For the simple reason that he, if he sees a challenge, he won't walk around it, he will face it and go over it. he become very, say, confident, uh, very cheeky, um, but funny cheeky. I remember being at his house once, and I think it was some sort of party. I think it might have been his birthday. I think it might have been the year uh, before his death, actually. And uh, we were all a bit drunk, and they have a McDonald's drive-through round the back from where they live. 
And I remember us running up the road a bit drunk, walking into the drive-through, pretending we were a car, <laughs> keeping up the pretense that, you know, there was two of us in the front and two of us in the back. And it was absolutely ridiculous, complete idiots. But Rob went along with it and we pretend to drive in and we ordered our food and drove out just pretending to drive a car. And that's another memory that I'll treasure as well. Just, you know, thinking outside the box, you know, being an idiot, being daft, but he'd always go along with crazy ideas. That was Rob. He was just full of love. Rob and Aaron used to have little projects on the go regularly, as Colin explained earlier about them stealing his camera. Aaron explained to me about how in 2005 they would spoof a popular British sci-fi programme and how Rob sometimes took roles that were detrimental to his health. So Rob and I, one of the things that we did do, we, we did this scripted thing called Dr Pooh, which is not an entirely original idea, but I was really a huge Doctor Who fan and I said I really wanted to do like a, a spoof of it. And this was back in 2005 when the show had just come back and I thought, oh, I, I want to do that, but I want to make it silly and I want to put wigs on and things like that. And Rob jumped on board straight away and we started filming these, you know, we, we'd call in all the favours. So, you know, we, we'd borrowed a church for a location. We borrowed my mum's school, which is St. Thomas More Primary School. At the time, she was a teacher there. And we were kind of let loose during the summer holiday of 2005 just running around with a camera and Rob would start choreographing these fight scenes that were just absolutely ridiculous. But it was all fun. It was all fun. It just made us laugh. Whatever we could think of, uh, especially Rob, he would just add stuff to it to make it silly. I think he got hurt a couple times when we were doing it. We had Jamie involved and I think Rob got a bit of, um, I think he was smashed over the head with a bit of Lego and it was just totally mistimed and <laughs> we got it on camera and it, it was it was terrible we kept rolling because you know and it, to his testament like rob just kept in character and went on with it but it was a quite blunt <laughs> blunt force lego block that was just hit on his head eventually i decided to pack the acting in i realized it wasn't really what i wanted to do i wanted to be behind the camera and i think those years with rob they allowed me to discover that for myself and I went to university to study film studies. Rob kept on with the acting. Uh, and in my first year of university, Rob had landed the part of Marcus Belby. So we went on two different traje trajectories, really. Um, but that's about it, really. He, he found you know, his calling in life. And if it wasn't for my time with Rob, I probably wouldn't have got into filmmaking and into editing, really. Rob landed a role in Channel 4's Trust Me, I'm a Teenager in 2003, where a team mentor evaluates three families and determines how best to help them based on that teen's life experiences. Then, in 2007, he landed the role of Josh in the BBC One sitcom After You've Gone, where he appeared alongside notable UK television stars Danny Harmer, who may be known to younger listeners as Tracy Beaker, and Nicholas Lindhurst, who will be known by almost everyone to have played Rodney in Only Fools and Horses. And then I discussed with Colin about how he felt when Rob landed the role in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, a role where, 
As Colin tells in this story, Rob never got the chance to see himself on the big screen next to another legend of British cinema, Jim Broadbent. I mean, to be honest, uh, to hear that your son had been chosen to be in an iconic film like Harry Potter was like unbelievable. Um, it was strangely enough, he, he, he went for another um, character's part, which he didn't get. But the producers were so sort of, um, they saw something in Robert that was attached to another character, which Robert ended up being Marcus Belby. But actually hearing that your son was in the largest, what I call the iconic series of films that's ever been made since I've been born. It was like, we used to get phone calls. Robert, nothing is in the documentary as well. Sally got them as well. But I, he used to phone me up. He used to be in a bar doing Champagne Charlie, right, because he used to love to celebrate. They wear the, 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 uh, the waist jackets and stuff and get the champagne out. And he used to get a phone call. Dad, I'm in a bar at the moment. I'm speaking to people. They don't believe I'm in Harry Potter. Tell them. And then you put it on speaker mode. And I say, yes, he's in Harry Potter by Marcus Belby. He was so proud of what he had achieved. He wanted everyone to know. He, he, he wasn't bragging. He was just so so proud of it. And I'm, I'm proud of him in what he had done. He, he had made that character for himself. He, he went there for a role as another character but he shone in a certain way. And I think he could have been contracted for the next, I think the last, the last book was split into two films and he was scheduled to be um, scripted into that. Uh, you, you walk around like so, so proud of what he had achieved, not me, not his mum, not his brother, what Robert had achieved. And um, unfortunately that was cut short uh, by some stupid, person yeah and and actual fact is that the caveat is um i was so proud of robert i was going to buy him a dinner suit and bow tie which is in a documentary and um i was so proud of him i i, I wanted to turn up at leicester square wearing the tux giving it charlie large whatever it is being proud of his moment you know i didn't want to turn up in jeans right so let's get the guy a tux i actually went to the eventually went to the premiere and I went in the tux and went in the limousine. They took us there, and it was unattractive. Robert would have loved it. Leicester Square was shut down. It was Harry Potter. We had to walk over this bridge, and there was like a million cameras, a thousand people. You know, it was like everyone was screaming with joy and stuff. And I actually walked through there thinking I was an actor. That's how the moment encapsulates you. It was um, there's an after there's an after dinner thing back near the law courts, and I met one of my favourite actors. When I was at the law courts after the after party, I'm standing there with, uh, who's I with? Uh, Sally, her partner, Jamie, and I went, that looks like Damien Lewis over there. And he went, oh, yeah, isn't it? I went, look, I really admire the guy. I, I love the band. Me, Robert and Jamie always watched, I've got a box set, because I used to work with Warner Brothers. I've got a box set of, Band of Brothers, and I actually loved it. So I recognised Damien straight away. So he said, "Go over and speak to him." I went, "No, I can't do that. I, I don't do that sort of thing." He said, "Well, he's here, and you like him. Go and have a chat with him." So 
this is the stupid thing, right? I went over, I went, hi, Damien. He went, hi. So he was on his own. I sat down at the table with him, having a chat. And um, I told him that I watched Band of Brothers. Do you know the first thing I was shot by? His accent. He wasn't American. No, he's from um, the south of England. <laughs> I went, I'm not a stupid person. So I thought, why did I expect him to speak with an American accent? But we had a good chat, and I said, I'm a great fan of yours. I don't do sucking. I said, but I just felt I had to come over because I admire your work, and you was great in the Band of Brothers. And uh, he said, well, send me the box set, and I'll sign it for you. I went, okay, catch you later. But I didn't. I just I just want to speak to the man that I admired as an actor, like Jamie Robert's an actor, Jamie's an actor, and I just wanted to say I respect your work. But that was a moment for me. In, 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 the, in the darkness of Rob's demise, after he'd gone and we went to the premiere, um, having seen someone that I admire, I thought, you know, it was a, sort of a sort of a bright light on a bad day. Yeah, there's, there's a point with, with, with Danny Harmon when we talk about uh, people saying nice things about your son or people, that Danny Harmon said he was like natural, he's a very easy person to get on with. I've never known anyone like him to walk into a, a job and acting first day and be chilled and a nice person to be with. And she looked forward to working with him when she did, uh, because that was Rob. He, he had a character. I think I was told this. I don't know if it's true or not. Rob was the first person to start a food fight in the Grand Hall in, in Harry Potter. And I can believe that to be true. I can't officially confirm it, but I've heard it did happen. And for that to happen makes sense for Robert. <laughs> Rob did not only have a funny side to him, but he also had a serious caring side as well. Rob's parents separated in September 2007 and would eventually divorce. Both the boys stayed living with Sally, but they wanted to make sure that they were still there for their dad. I spoke to Colin and Aaron about Rob's caring nature and they could both tell me stories about how Rob would always put others before himself. In the documentary The Rob Knox Story, Rob's mum Sally also tells a story about how he was never too proud to show his love for her, which, when you hear it, will really make you realise what a truly wonderful human being he was. With the blessing of the production team, I've been allowed to use this story as well. Yes, there's something that springs to mind immediately. I, um, a, as a parent, you may do this. You might start putting coins in the bottle. All the loose change, and the bottle gets full. And I think this happens around about the time, maybe when I was divorcing his mum, I felt I didn't really need this money, didn't really want this money. So I said to Rob, here you are. Is a large bottle of money. Do you know what he done with that? He took it down to the bank and paid it into Children in Need, Africa. Every penny. And I thought, wow, for a young kid. I mean, he's, he watched TV. It's touched his heart. And and the money I gave him, he could have bought a pair of shoes, a shirt, or something. But he didn't. He, he, he took it down the bank, emptied it out. They, they cashed it up. And he said, I wanted to go to children in need, I think it was Africa. That that was that was Rob. Now I think Jamie said before that, or other people said this, him his mum, and I know this for a fact, he will spend your his last penny on you. If you had five pounds and you wanted five pounds, he would give you five pounds. 
He had, he had a, a pure heart. Yeah, I never saw Rob pissed off or, or upset. I never saw him angry, I don't think. I, Rob was always very much an optimist, like his father. And if he knew you were down, he'd always try and cheer you up, no matter what, whether if it was, you know, doing silly voices or or, or things like that. But at parties, and, and Rob really knew how to throw a party. Uh, I remember one time we all stayed over at his house for a barbecue or something like that. And we'd all had too much to drink, way too much to drink. I don't even think we were old enough to drink then, but we did. And um, I just remember waking up the following morning and we're all hung over and mouth dry and everything. And I just, I just heard the sound of frying coming from the kitchen and Rob was already up. He'd gone from life and soul of the party to mother hen. Uh, overnight and he was cooking us up a fry up i don't know where he got the ingredients from i'm pretty sure he just looked in the fridge and was like screw it everyone's getting fried eggs bacon and sausages or something and um and there he was i walk into the kitchen and he's frying up some sausages and he was laying everything out from everyone i'm pretty sure half the people in the house were, uh, like a coma state and um but that's the kind of guy he was it, you know it wasn't just life and soul of the party the following morning he'd look after you and He'd always make sure you'd eaten. He'd always make sure that you were looked after. And I, I can't think of many friends at that age, you know, being so young, who would, who would do that. They'd probably be like, "Oh, help yourself," or, "We'll go to the cafe or something like that." But Rob was very much, you know, if you were a friend of Rob's, he would look after you definitely. He would always be, "Mum, come and sit with me on the sofa, give me a cuddle," and. I can remember as he got a little bit older, one of the big things that sticks in my mind is we were down at Blue Water and we were shopping and as we walked along in Blue Water, I think Rob was 17 and he grabbed my hand to walk along the road and I said, that's not going to do your street cred any good. And he went, I don't care, I don't care, everybody can know that I love my mum. Things like that really stick in my mind. Despite the fact that Rob was now a Hollywood star, he never forgot his friends. Aaron was now at university and was set a challenge to write, record and edit a short horror movie in 48 hours. He knew who he could rely on to help. And so, Employee of the Dead was shot. So, Employee of the Dead came about uh, in my first year of university. Uh, our lecturer, Graham Kennedy, had approached the class and said, OK, we're going to give you a camera, we're going to give you all the kit you need, I want you to go away and I wanted to write, shoot, edit a short horror film, all within 48 hours. I think there were a couple of things that we needed to include in the film, like a couple of props and dialogue that we had to include. And then at the end of it, we'd get graded, and they'd show it at this tiny little pub in Ealing, where we had our own little award ceremony. Uh, it was fantastic, because we knew that we didn't have much time we knew that we didn't have a budget. We were just, you know, a few kids, essentially, who were just trying to come up with the funniest ideas that we could. It was meant to be horror, but, you know, we were kind of very much influenced by Shaun of the Dead, and I'm a huge horror horror fan, so I thought, well, I'm working, I'm working at Sainsbury's uh, on the night shift at this point, and I started getting ideas, and I thought, well, wouldn't it be funny if we tried to sort of emulate Dawn of the Dead in some way. And we eventually came up with this idea between myself, Rob, Joe Akers, and Todd Stammers. 
and next thing I know, we're rehearsing it around Joe's house, and then we're into the supermarket. I think it was a midnight start, so the shop had shut. There were a few people working in the shop at the time, and yeah, we just went straight to it. We weren't experienced. It was just for fun, but at the same time, you could see with Rob, he was taking it very seriously. At this time, Rob had just finished, or I think he was in the middle of shooting Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, but it didn't matter to him. It didn't matter that this was fun. It didn't matter that this was us running around in a Sainsbury's covered in fake blood and whatnot. It didn't matter. He took it extremely seriously, despite the fact that the rest of us weren't professional actors. We were just students of, uh, of film, essentially. And it was the most amazing time that we'd we'd ever had, you know, making something with a video camera. And I look back on it very fondly, even though it was the last time that I would actually spend time with Rob. It's sad because Rob never saw the finished film. You know, we, we premiered it uh, at this little pub in Ealing, along with a lot of other student films. and But Rob never got to see the finished film, which still upsets me to this day that, you know, a matter of weeks later, we lose Rob. But I, I do look back on it as one of the best times I ever had with Rob. You know, um, there were no, there was no adult supervision. We, we honestly did what we thought was hilarious, and w- what we thought at the time other people would find hilarious. There was a moment on camera where we were saying goodbye to Rob. Um, he had to shoot off quite early in the shoot. I think about three or four in the morning, and we weren't finishing up until nine. And uh, we just called it on camera, just saying goodbye to him. And I didn't find this footage until years later um, when I was just going over some old tapes. And it really did sort of bring it all back to me, thinking, wow, that was that was it. It's it's difficult to describe because, it, you know, at the same time, as, as sad as it is, you know, I'm so happy that I got to spend that time with Rob making something special. On Friday the 23rd of May 2008, Rob had arranged to meet up with friends at the Metro Bar in Sidcup. It was a night which would ultimately end in tragedy. Uh, he's got two knives on him, waving them about, waving them in my face. Um, my mate had a punch up with him earlier. The police came, it was all calmed down. Now the come down with two knives. And so where are you? Um, I'm outside the Metro Bar. You need to get a police car down in now. The male with the knife, where is he now? Outside the metro bar now. And what's his name? I don't know, I can't f*** him. That was the voice of one of Rob's closest friends, Nick Jones, desperately pleading with the police to come and help them. I'm not going to go into a great deal of detail about the attack itself. As I explained at the start, this is a collaboration episode and I implore you to go over to the Lady Justice podcast after you have heard this and hear Chantel discuss what happened on that night from the testimony of those that were there. I did, however, ask Colin to recall what it was like to receive the phone call that his son had been attacked. It was very late on a Friday night, I think on the 23rd of May, 2008, as you know, as your listeners will know by now that, you know, I'm no longer married, Sally. I've got a phone call and it's, it's I can't remember how late it was, 11, 11, 30, 12 o'clock. And it's the dead of night. And 
you, you pick the, the, the phone up and go, why is someone calling me this late? And when you hear these words, Rob's been stabbed, Rob's been stabbed, you think, this is surreal. You're thinking you're in a dream. This is not happening or a nightmare. It's not happening. And like Jamie refers to in the documentary, when, when he tells his mum that he's been stabbed, he said, how bad is it? So I don't know. I don't know. And I asked Sally that same question. How bad is it? She said, I don't know. I don't know. So I had to jump in my car and drive 15 miles to Queen Mary's in Sidcup. I travelled up from Dartford in Greenhive. And I got to the hospital, and it's, it's pretty empty, to be honest. And I said to the receptionist, uh, uh, can you tell me where, if you had an admission, Rob Knox, uh, that's been murdered with a stab wound? And he said, uh, hang on a minute, let me check. And he said, oh, uh, yeah, the, the family's in the family room. If you go up there, and da, 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 da. okay, fine. So I walk around the corridors. And I see this this woman dressed in hospital clothing. I said, excuse me, I'm looking um, for Rob Knox. It's been a minister for a stab wound. She said, um, oh, he's, he's in recess. I went, oh, okay, thank you. Because I was pretty close to where the family room was. I just wanted to find out the update. And he, he said, he's in recess. I said, okay. And I went, recess? That is the worst thing that could be. I, initially, I didn't realise what... Because you're, you're spaced out, your minds are everywhere. You didn't. You take on board what they've said, but you don't understand what they've said. You, you hear the words, but you don't understand them. It's not until I walked away, I went, hang on a minute, recess. That is worse than intensive care. So I went into the family room, and, and you know, Sally was in there, and Jamie was in there with Julie and, and, and stuff. And I remember, I think we was in there, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour, um, kept on going out to where the ambulance is parked up and having a cigarette. And I thought, I didn't know what I was thinking. I was confused. I I was just thinking, okay, they're going to say, yeah, we put plaster on it and it's all been mended. Because you don't expect your son to be killed. You think, this is a hospital. Nowadays, they, they can do wonders and stuff. Unfortunately, he, he was stabbed five times and with a guy with two knives and one of them stabbed stabbing actions pierced his aorta and i think i think on reflection he would have been dead within a minute or two so but but I, at that time i didn't know this i'm having a cigarette wondering what's going on put, put a sticky plaster on i can take him home or whatever and you go back to um the family room and there was Strangely enough, there was a door that actually sort of creaked a bit on its hinges when he opened. So that must have happened three or four times for whatever reason. And you've, as um, soon as that happens, you, everyone turns towards the door and it's, oh, it's just someone saying something. It just, you know. But on, on, the, on the last occasion when it happened, in troops, the hospital staff and the police. And it's like when you pass your driving test, when they say, unfortunately, you know you've failed. So we knew that he had died. It's unfortunate we, we couldn't save him. And uh, all hell broke loose. Sally fainted. She had to have uh, uh, an ECG done, I think, because she just zonked out. Um, there was screaming, as I say, of disbelief, anger. And do you know when I told you early on about in your life, there's just two of you, and there becomes three. You know, all of a sudden... Four becomes three. I've lost a son. And you say, why? 
why why am I and the, the weird thing is that when you go about your daily life and you drive around you think why are people smiling don't they understand my my son is dead it's why are they enjoying their life I mean it, I'm not sort of disrespecting anyone's whatever they do I was just observing it's my it's my inner thoughts that were saying to me I'm in a place called Hotel Hell you've got to come to terms with someone that you brought into this world cherished love brought up and never brought up correctly and for some idiot for some reason decided to go home after an altercation to go home pick up two kitchen knives come back to where rob was killed and he said this a year before i'm sorry a week before as a witness at a bus stop a nigerian guy he turned around and said i, I heard the murderer say i will come back next week and someone's going to die and he lived up to that he he come back the following week caused more fuss he went home got two knives and he had a lot of time to think about his actions because the walk must have taken him at least 10 minutes up 10 minutes back 20 minutes plus searching through his his mum's knife drawer he probably had half an hour to reflect on what he was going to do and he came back and 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 waved the knife in front of jamie and his friends first uh i think five people were injured that night um just trying to stop this guy from doing what he was trying to do robert got this guy in like a an arm lock where he, he he's got his arms wrapped around the guy with the knives minutes later he was on the floor uh with his friend callum and that's the fact i i did ask callum rob died in in callum's arms but i won't tell you out of respect for callum but i said to him what were rob's last words and they they were nice um but callum doesn't want to Callum struggled with this all of his life. He doesn't want to come forward and be on a documentary, and I totally respect that, because he was in a really bad place. But I, I often wonder, you know, this this probably happened when I asked Callum. This probably happened a couple of years after the event, because I didn't think it was right to ask him at the time. But I needed to know what my son's last words were. Um, but they, they're okay. That's okay. Um, Rob Knox unfortunately lost his battle in the early hours of the 24th of May 2008. Aaron was not there that night. As he explained in a minute, he wanted to stay in having completed a long work shift. He recalls his utter disbelief of the news that he received. So the day that, or the following day that Rob had passed away, I wasn't aware of it. I was aware that there was some sort of party, sort of meet-up celebration thing happening at the Metro Bar in Sidcup. You know, Rob had different groups of friends, and um, I didn't really know the friends that he was going to the pub with that night. I, I, I don't think I'd spoken very much to Nick Jones or Andrew Dormer or Charlie Grimley, any any of those people who were there that night. It's a bit fuzzy, but I, I do remember sort of keeping myself to myself that night and not going out and just remember sort of saying to people, look, I've just done a shift at Sainsbury's, uh, the late shift, and I just wanted to go home and watch a film. And the following morning I woke up and everything was normal. Um, and it wasn't until um, 
I had to go to the library, the local library in Chislehurst. I got a phone call whilst I was helping my little brother. You know, he was looking for a book for his class to read. Um, I was in the kids section. I got a phone call from James Shoveler, who had worked with me on uh, the short zombie film we did. And he, I just remember him saying to me, have you heard the news? And I was like, no, like, you know, not thinking anything of it. And I just remember there sort of being a brief silence and he just said, Rob's dead. And I can still remember thinking, Rob who? Like, I don't know any Robs. Like, I hadn't really sort of known anyone at the time who had, who was my age who had passed away, you know. Um, and I'm trying to think of an older Rob. I'm trying to think, is there someone at university, like a lecturer called Rob? And, and it, it suddenly hit me like a ton of bricks who he was talking about and I, I don't really remember the rest of the conversation after that I think I just I think I, I lost my breath I, I yeah it was kind of like my vision went blurry and I, I honestly didn't know what to do I, I think I, I think I hung up on him which sounds terrible I, but I remember making my way outside making my way to a bench and I, the first number I called was Rob's house phone uh, a voice answered that I'd, I'd never heard before and uh, said it's Rob's auntie, uh, Sally, Rob's mum's in the bathroom. And I just heard this wail uh, in the background um, that I'd never heard before. You know, it was quite, it wasn't human, you know. And and I just sort of paused and said, is it true? And she just said, yes, last night. And that that was it. And And I think... I, th I think I hung up straight away and I burst out crying and I, I didn't know how to process the information because yeah, it, it just hits you like a ton of bricks really. And I, I honestly did not know how to feel. I felt numb. I felt, you know, I think I called uh, a few friends of mine. I, I called Joe Akers. I called Todd again, both had worked on the zombie movie. I told him what happened. I think I started walking home after that um, just by myself just making my way home, just trying to call people, trying to, you know, it felt like a bit of a burden finding out what had happened. And I, I really wanted someone else to talk to. Eventually it wasn't until I got home and BBC news was on and, uh, and there was Rob's face on the news. And I think, I think then it started to become very real. Uh, it just, it just felt like something out of, I don't know. It felt like, I have no idea. It, it, it felt like it wasn't my life I was living. It felt like it didn't feel right. So I um, I called up Todd Stammers and we got in his car and we went over to the Metro bar. And by the time we got to the Metro bar, there were probably hundreds of people just there. There's all these flowers and uh, football shirts. And it, it was just insane. I mean, it did take a long time to realize that I'd lost my friend. And uh, I remember the, the newspapers every day after that were Harry Potter actor murdered and star of Harry Potter film knifed and things like that. And it, it honestly felt like it was something out of the twilight zone. I, I'd only been working with him and speaking to him a, a, you know, a couple of weeks ago, if that. So it just felt really unreal. And so began a long fight for justice for the family. I spoke at length with Colin about this and the story is absolutely devastating. But rather than me describe it to you, please hear it from Colin in his own words. 
as he takes you through the journey of the hellacious months after. I used to live my, on my own and I used to punch the walls out of anger because Rob had to go through a post-mortem. Now, not only was he killed, now I'm thinking they're going to cut his body open. And then I found out once the results were known, the defence has the right to do the same independently. So there'll be another post-mortem. So I, I was punching walls because um, just, just the thought of just someone, I know they had to do that, but it was the thought of it happening. And I, I, I had to say goodbye. I hadn't seen Robert because I divorced Sally. I, I live on my own. So I allowed the kids to stay with, with, with Sally because I didn't want to disturb their life, the social life, their acting life, their school and students. We eventually, I think Bodies Robert was taken to Alton Hospitals and um, there, there's a room where, where, they, where they keep bodies. And um, I went there with Sally, her sister, myself, Jamie, and uh, the grandparents. And when I, when I got into the sort of the, the outer room, I said, I can't go in there. So Sally went in with um, her sister. And then Julie, which is her sister, come back and said, no, Colin, you've got to see him. He looks fine. Please don't worry, because I was worried. So I said, OK, fine. So I built up the courage. I want to remember Rob as he was, because when my dad passed when I saw him, I wish I hadn't done it, because the images changed. And I thought, I don't want a bad image of Robert. I want to remember as he was. And I went in there, and I must admit, he, he looked OK. Until I spoke to him, and uh, to the only way you can say goodbye is to say your words and then kiss him on his forehead. But he was, his body was cold. It was, it was so hard. Say goodbye. I know it's hard to say goodbye to anyone that's dead, but just, just to feel that there was no warmth in his body. It was, it was cold. But he facially looked okay. Um, but, but going on from that, um, there are stories that probably have not been put out there uh, in the media. It took around about nine months to a year to get it to, it to, to court. And you think, okay, you get closure once. Once you don't really get closure. But there's a verdict reached and the guy got life, which is 20 years. Not long after that, because I had a family liaison officer and she was fantastic uh, all the way through. And I got a message that come through that there was a man that got hold of Rob's mortuary photographs and trying to sell them to a tabloid newspaper for £10,000. And I went fucking, I went, I went mad. The, the police were onto it. Um, they eventually got hold of the guy, uh, built the case up and... He went to court many times in many different courts and anywhere where I live. So I made sure that I was in court every day that that guy had to appear. And it's more than once because he got deferred. They couldn't turn up for some reason, so I travelled. And um, he eventually got his uh, just desserts. Um, but the fact that Rob's demise had carried on for another year uh, where... All I can think of is these photographs come from the defence side, not from the prosecution side, because the defence are allowed to use the same um, photographs as uh, the prosecution, exhibit A, exhibit B, wherever they are. 
and um, somewhere along the line, some someone released these pictures to someone else for no other means than earning ten thousand pounds. And I, I don't know enough swear words to. You can't dignify what that person tried to do just just for money. It was horrible. We did not discuss the trial at length because, as with the night of the attack, Emily from the Students' Verdict podcast will be looking into this with the detective who led the investigation. I will, however, tell you that on the 5th of March 2009, at the Old Bailey in London, Mr Justice Bean sentenced a 22-year-old man to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 20 years for the murder of Rob as well as two counts of GBH and two counts of unlawful, malicious wounding. Rob's funeral took place on the 25th of June 2008. There were two separate services for Rob, one private and one public. I discussed with Colin about the family saying goodbye and the heartbreaking story of Rob's final journey with his true best friend. He also told the story about how the media intruded on the sanctity of the public service. Rob, Rob, we bought Rob a Mickey Mouse. He always slept with Mickey Mouse. Even even the age that he was killed, he he went, (laughs) Mickey Mouse was next to his head, right? So what I said to Sally was, when Rob gets cremated, I want Mickey Mouse put in the coffin with Rob because uh, he was his lifelong friend and I you know, I just, I felt that he had to, if Rob was taken, he's got to take his friend with him. That that was a hard decision to make. Well, it wasn't, it was easy. It was hard because Rob was dead. Um, on, on one day, we had two services. One was uh, mostly for family. Um, it's where... Yeah, is where I had to carry my my son on my shoulders with my brothers and my brother-in-law. All the all the men in the family carried him into the place where he was going to be cremated, and knowing that his head was six inches away from my head, and um, to do that, it needs a lot of strength because your your legs get a bit floppy and your brains float all over the place. And to know that within a half an hour he will be cremated, unfortunately, put Mickey Mouse in his his coffin. Um, that 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 was hard, but. Sally felt that that service didn't do justice to Robert. I won't go into any ins and outs of why. It wasn't anything to do with the family or anything like that. It was just something that. But we did have after that at um, St John the Baptist Church in Sidcup, and it's a massive church. It holds like five hundred people, and I, I wanted a song played, a special song played. Put it that way. On the memorial side of it, um, we we it was absolutely rammed. Honestly, you 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 couldn't squeeze a fag paper between people's shoulders. There was so 
so many people, friends, family, rugby, you name it. And it was the church was. We had the th we had the three directors from Harry Potter there, the, what I call the three Davids. They turned up. That was very emotional. It, it was basically m myself, Jamie, and, and Sally walking down the aisle, and this song playing. And um, I gave a speech and the lectern to everyone that was in the in the church. I started reading it, and not only totally before it, when I speak to children at school, I get emotional. I started reading it, and I I found myself my throat clogging up. I I I couldn't open my vowels to speak because I was just joking up. So I actually. <laughs> I actually said, Rob, help me out. Rob, be with me. I asked I asked Rob to help me. And I, I probably was, uh, I didn't speak for, it seemed an eternity, but it's probably um, five or ten seconds. And, and then I sort of uh, got my composure and, and, and carried on and paid my respects to my, my, my son, uh, delivering the speech that I wrote uh, the night before. Um, uh, you're sorry, yeah, Rupert Grint was there um, with the three Davids from Harry Potter of Rupert Grint was there. And the, the, the sad thing is that when we got outside, the press had to sit beyond the barrier opposite the front of the church. They weren't allowed to come through that. So as I've come out of the church to left, I spoke to Rupert and thanked him for turning up and, and being respectful to my son. And, 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 and what happened? The paparazzi started running over towards Rupert and he hightailed it round the corner. I thought, how disrespectful of the, of the media to do that, right? They want a photograph where you can, you've got a zoom lens, take the photograph. But no, they, they it's literally, I don't know, half a dozen plus more just trying to run it to get something. It's the same person, same picture, a bit closer. Why? And I thought that's sad. But what we did find out, funny enough, about Rob, we found out through friends that on nights where he had occasion to sit and chill with his friends and have a lager, they would talk about life. But Rob also talked about death. He said, when I, when I, if I was to die, I don't want a black hearse. I want a white one. I don't want people to wear black. I want people to wear bright colours. And, uh, and I want Krispy Kreme. We, we knew that he wanted Krispy Kreme donuts, he wanted everyone to wear a bright colour and he didn't want a black hearse. So thankfully, it's strange how it came about, but we knew what he would have wished for should have happened and it happened. But fortunately we were told by some of his friends and so we got a white hearse. No one wore black, everyone wore the brightest colour they could. This is Rob's outgoing character, like don't don't cry, don't be unhappy. But I want bright colours, white hearse, and crispy, crispy cream donuts. And to be honest, uh, crispy cream donuts, because we after the memorial service, we went back to Sick Up Rugby Football Club, uh, where I was coached before. Crispy cream donuts sent 500 donuts <laughs> to the rugby club. <laughs> and I think everyone munched on them. <laughs> I also asked Aaron the same question. When I spoke to him, he recalled a story which included a comment from Ray Winston, 
which will really make you think. And then there was a service at St. John the Evangelist Church in Sidcup, and I went to that one, and the church was packed. Um, you know, you had people from Harry Potter there. Um, there were friends that I knew from theatre school who were there, and um, I, I don't think I, I could... I could contain myself at the time. I think I stood quite near the back and I, you know, I still couldn't believe, you know, we'd got to this point, you know, I talked about earlier about being in shock that Robert passed, but, and then we, we, we got to the church, you know, for the service. And I, I, you know, again, it hit me like a ton of bricks that we're here for, you know, not like an uncle who had a sickness or, you know, or someone in the family who'd, who just got old. This was someone who was, in the prime of their youth, they were 18, you know, and it really bugged me about the fact that he'd gone, I wouldn't be able to speak to him again. And he wasn't going to experience the things in life that you experience when you become an adult. I mean, just to go off topic here, when we were speaking to Ray Winston on the uh, during the shooting for the documentary, um, Ray brought up a really good point that kind of echoed what I thought when I was at that service and um Ray had said you know it's it's a, it's devastating what happened to Rob I mean who knows what would have happened to him you know had he lived and Colin Rob's father who was there said yeah he was you know he would have been in the next Harry Potter movie or whatever and and Ray just sort of brought us all down to earth in that moment and just said yeah well I'm, I'm not talking about that I'm talking about like he probably would have got married He'd probably have a kid by now and and that hit me as well when we were shooting the documentary because it made me suddenly think i'm i'm 31 now and rob and i were the same age rob would have been 31 this year and i've gone through so many life experiences a lot of my friends have have either got married um a lot of my friends have had kids this year and this is something that rob will never know um you know and um rob's brother jamie he, he was due to get married this year as well you know, but COVID happened and um and Rob should have been best man at Jamie's wedding and it's just a shame that, you know, that it's just the little things with you know, as the years go by it becomes even harder, I suppose. It's a long journey. When someone close to you dies, it, it is a journey for you, for those who are left who are just, you know, having to pick up the pieces as best they can and not move on. Never move on, but just just to get on with things as best they can, because that's pro that's what would, Rob would have wanted essentially. And and every once in a while, a Christmas will come by, or a, a birthday, or someone will get married. It just makes you think, you know, like, you know, Rob. I wish Rob would be around for this, and I wish Rob could be here to experience the, you know, the the crappy jobs that you get, you know, the promotions you get, you know, going to the cinema, little things, you know. I wish he was around for that but Rob's funeral I kind of had a premonition of all that was to come like I knew that this was it and Rob wouldn't have any more experiences you know it's it's sweet that people still talk about his involvement in Harry Potter and people do say oh he could have been in the next one and things like that but to me it, it's the life experiences that get me that that he's missing out on still right now you know Colin told me a story about how, after everything the family had been through, there was still one more opportunity to be remarkably proud of what Rob had accomplished in his life. The, st the strange thing after Rob was killed 
on May the 24th, 2008. Shortly after that, we got a message from the Kent Police, and they said they were going to award Rob Knox a posthumous award for bravery. I mean, what's this all about? And it turns out that exactly one year before, to the date, May the 24th, 2007, Rob helped... Uh, there was a woman that got attacked in Marks and Spencers. I think she had head wounds and, and stuff. And so so he, he chased the, uh, the assailant out of, of Blue Water through a car park into some woods, and I think another security guard was with him as well. And they cornered this guy until the police turned up. And when I when I heard that he had won a posthumous of all the bravery, I just um, I got so emotional. He should be alive to receive this because that was an act of bravery, maybe stupidity, but it was an act of bravery. And um, to go there to receive that on Rob's behalf was something um, special, surreal, proud. You get so many emotions. He should be here, but he's not. But I'll be proud for to receive it on his behalf. And the, the strange thing is the date was exactly one year that incident happened to, to, to when he was killed on the same date, May 24. Following Rob's passing, the Rob Knox Foundation was born. I discussed the foundation with Colin and how it helped one former X Factor winner. With the foundation, it wasn't initially called the Foundation, it's called the Rob Knox something rather than we changed it to a foundation, become a, 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 a charity. We, we set up a bursary for a person that has the ability and the capability, the, the chance that they could progress in their dance, acting, singing career as students, but they can't afford it or they couldn't afford it. So the, the bursary that we set up is... Um, whereby they auditioned and we saw with uh, Donna and Bonnie were the, the owners of DMB plus I think there's about five judges, four judges, Sally, myself and, and two others, three others, yeah three others and uh, we assessed their performance so it's got to be how, how they performed are they likely to succeed and the only way they could fail is by not being um, able to financially go to the theatre group. So we set up a bursary where we would fund them for three years. I think we've done it for two people. Now, the se- I've only mentioned the first person. No, no, no disrespect to the first person, but the second person, you might you might know who this person is. Have you ever watched X Factor? Matt Terry? Right, we, we sponsored him for three years. The Rob Knox Foundation sponsor his studentship and his bursary at DMB uh, Performing Arts for three years and he went on to win, win X Factor. Um, so that's that's one thing that we're proud of. Um, but that's that's stopped now because it, it, it takes a lot of money to do that. Um, so we, we had to make sure that we are focusing primarily on knife crime, but also the arts are important because 99.9% of people, young people, are good. So why should we give a hell of a lot of effort on the bad side? So I call it the dark and the light side of the moon. So Sally now looks after the dark side of the moon, which is the knife crime. Uh, I backed out of that because I was off people's lips because of my work um, conditions. I, I, I couldn't get out there anymore. So I then I decided to do the art side. 
Rob Knox Film Festival, uh, the Rob Knox Academy in Chatham, which we which we're proud of. We was fortunate, funny enough, to get um, from the Commissioner of the Kent Police a £10,000 grant to formulate the Rob Knox Film Academy. Basically, it's getting young young people um, off the street, no matter which colour they are, which race they are, it doesn't matter. We, we, we put the flyers out there, approach schools, and we've got young adults <laughs> um, to learn the arts or anything to do with making a film. Budget, script, acting, directing, film, sound, lighting, the lot. Um, uh, courtesy with uh, Mike Waring, who is my director of the Rob Knox Film Festival, what happens every June. Um, so we utilise that money to buy the equipment, the sound, camera and stuff. And uh, they want us to produce uh, a short film, which which they've done themselves. They they produced their own short film. Um, so we, we've, we've done that. On day, on day one, if you see the press release on YouTube and stuff, you see the press release that when, when we had to speak to the press on the following morning after he was killed, we adopted a way of looking at what had happened. Now, I've, I've been speaking about this in work about two years before, beforehand. What would you do if? Oh, yeah, if they'd done that, oh, yeah, 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 right? That's what you say. Like, if you win the pause, what would you do? You don't know, right? You say, make these statements in your office. Yeah, that happened to me, yeah, yeah. But we thought, no, we've got to make something positive out of this. Although, although he, he's been taken, let's use his... He, we was lucky enough to be in a position because of Harry Potter, that's all it was, to be in a position to, to get the media attention, to get attention of anyone that wants to listen to do with politics or knife crime or, or whatever it was. So our statement was heartfelt statement where we we wanted to not blame, but to ask people to stop. Don't do what you do. There's there's only you. Everyone's the loser. The person's murdered. The the murderer. The family. The it's a it's a ripple effect. It goes out to hundreds of people. So people don't think about the repercussions and, and stuff. We adopted the the attitude of trying to fight knife crime, and that was our our platform. So immediately we, we wasn't a charity, we wasn't set up. We eventually become the Rob Knox Foundation. Uh, we worked very closely for years and still do with Charlton Athletic Community Trust. And the two things that we focus on, and you have to do it being a charity, you have to say what your focus is. And the focus was try and fight knife crime, make awareness of knife crime, knife carrying, anything to do with knives and not so much guns, because we, we were talking about something specific to Rob and the foundation, but guns did come into it. It's antisocial behaviour as well. So we, we talked about that, but also, like I said before, with the dark side and the light side of the moon, there, there are two things, and 99.9% of people are good people. We shouldn't forget those, pe those young people out there that need to be encouraged, like with Matt Terry, that support those that are doing good and turn around those people that are not. And it seems to be, to me, I think it was overbalanced in as much as there's so much attention towards knife crime and nothing being done about it. I've, I've spoken to Prince Charles, Prince Israel. Um, I've spoken to the Home Office, which was a short shrift. I've spoken to the police commissioner. 
yeah so the foundation um was, was set up for a good reason um it's still functioning and we're a foundation that are small we are a family foundation we work on people's charity like mike waring and like aaron trust and and, and joe acres and, and way winston and all the all the hundreds of people involved in documentary they just step up and do it now we, we, we as a foundation we we don't make a penny out of this. I've never drawn money from the foundation. Anything that is in there, we use to promote the foundation, to promote what we're doing. So there may be charities out there, directors get paid lots of money, but not in our case. It's it's all done for nothing. All the years that I've been involved with it, I've never drawn a penny from it. In fact, <laughs> I've been paying out bits of money out of my own pocket because I don't want to dip into the, the foundation's funds. So I've sort of sponsored... Uh, Colin continues to battle for stronger punishments for knife crime and following Rob's passing he was a regular visitor to number 10 Downing Street. Colin tells the story about how he came so close to getting the change that the people in the UK are crying out for. At the time when I speak to Gordon Brown he he was saying that if Labour Party got in and, and the up-and-coming election was only a few months away, he he would, the Labour Party would give a 30-minute session per week on citizenship in in national all schools. So I thought that's that's pretty good. Okay, they they lost the election. Uh, Conservatives got in, and uh, I spoke to the Educational Minister, and he went, "No, nah, I'm not having that. I mean, we're not going to do that." And I. I said, well, why? The Labour Party thought it was a relative. Good citizenship, teach young people how to be, be respectful, how to sort of conduct themselves, don't do knives, don't do guns, and all that sort of stuff. The Labour Party thought it was good, but the Conservatives didn't, voiced by the um, Education Minister. Despite the battles that Colin was going through, he still had chance to do something that he thought his son would do. We've talked about Rob being... A bit naughty times. I had to go to number 10 and speak to Gordon Brown. And um, do you remember the film Love Actually? And when you walk up the uh, walk on up the, the stairs, yellow walls and all the pictures of all the prime ministers and stuff, I got halfway up and I thought of um, Love Actually. Was it you, Grant? Hugh? Yeah. Do you remember he danced down the stairs waving his arms up in the air? I got halfway up and I said, I'm going to do this because Rob would do it. So, I mean, number 10 Downing Street, all these dignitaries coming past me. I turn around, come back down the stairs, waving my arms around like Hugh Grant. And I went, yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that, was a funny, that was a funny moment. Colin then discussed with me how the family had tried to get some reform within the Metropolitan Police. After Rob died, I went to Scotland Yard and spoke to the, the commissioner. And it turns out that Rob's murderer had been incarcerated before for using a knife. He later was suspected for using a knife against someone else. So there's a case file open for him for that offence two weeks before Rob died or weeks before Rob died. But some people in the office put that file somewhere else. It wasn't a closed file. It was a file that was like put to one side. So the murderer still had license to run 
And in his roaming weeks later, he killed Robert. So I approached the, the commissioner and he was worried because he knew that we had media attention and he knew there was a fault in the system. And I think on the third visit that we made in Scotland Yard, I think, I think Cressida Dick was sort of an understudy to this person at the time. Cressida Dick was not the commissioner. She was, I forget her rank at the time, but she was there. But with the commissioner, he assured us that the system had changed and that sort of thing won't happen, uh, happen again. And that's all we wanted. We wanted to make change in the positive, not the negative. What we said was there was two officers that were involved handling this case file. We said, we won't blame the officers, one detective and the other one was like a straight detective. But we, um, we said, we don't want to blame someone. How far back do you go to blame someone? Is it a minute, an hour, last week, two weeks? I mean, lots, lots of things happen in your life. There's lots of courses people take. So maybe they might have had something to do with it, but I think one left the force and one retired. Um, maybe the pressure, I don't know why. But we don't, we don't blame them per se. It's the system that we were challenging. So yeah, we were told that uh, uh, the system had been changed. The reason that I'm doing this episode today is because I was contacted by the Foundation to do an episode in support of the documentary, which is in post-production at the moment. I discussed how this came about with Colin. I was trying to get more involved in the art side of the Foundation, and I've actually been exec producer to three or four films, some small, one major. I... I started feeling that I was getting like the uh, the, move, the, the, the movie industry itch, you know, I want to get involved somewhere. And that derived from um, making Cold Kiss. The documentary is, I think initially it was to make like a, a memorial to my son, not just a, a, a tombstone, because we've, we've got that laid where he's laid. But I wanted this graphic tombstone or memorial of of rob so i thought well how can we best do this the only one we can do this is to do it in three parts who was rob what happened to rob and the knife crime issue going on from that so there there are three clear sort of what i call chapters first of all most people wouldn't know who rob knox was so i felt pertinent it was pertinent to introduce rob show him as a young boy what he did and stuff and who he was and who his friends were and and then um, just move it on in, in three segments. So I'd done that initially with a previous director. I uh, won't mention his last name, but his first name was Aaron, funny enough. He, he produced something. He was a very young, up-and-coming director. I utilised his talents to make for me the foundation, I say me because I'm in charge of the art side of it, to make a documentary, which he'd done. And I, I put it in front of some people from the BBC and I spoke to one lady for an hour and she spoke for 45 minutes. But she gave me good advice. And I thought, yeah, I think what she's saying is true. This this is not the polished article. This is not the finished article that I, I want or strive for. And then uh, I had a chat with Aaron. Aaron Truss, who worked with Rob on, on, on their own films as youngsters. 
Erin works in the, sort of the post-production side of the professional business. And um, I knew of Erin, and I, I know that he was one of Rob's close friends. So there was like a, a confidence thing there. And I asked him to come on board. And that guy's got so much energy. He's got, he reminds me of Rob. And I told him this only a couple of weeks ago. You remind me of Rob. Remember I said about there's nothing that stops him. He doesn't walk around a problem. He looks at the problem and, and jumps the fence, doesn't try to go around. He, Aaron has, has got such a driving force, not in a bad way, in, in a good way. He He's, okay, it's, it's like running a marathon. You want someone to pick it up for another mile and, and push you on a bit more. You know, we're running 16 miles in, we've got 10. And he will, he will keep on pushing that motion forward. And he's... I've probably spoken to him 23 gillion times, right? I've I've had so many phone calls, uh, drunken phone calls, um, stupid phone calls, a stupid time of the night, stupid time of the day. We have spoken, I don't know, a trillion words. Um, but I don't mind doing that, and he doesn't mind doing that either because it's we have got. Uh, I've I've actually <laughs> I actually called him my third son. Uh, because I love the guy. He's is is very uh, a driven person. He's very professional. He's he's articulate, intelligent, and I hope he doesn't say hear this because he might get a bit too too, too, too cocky. But I love the guy. Is he, uh, if ever I call him or he calls me, we'll always make sure that the phone's picked up or it's replied to because. Um, yeah, I, I actually know if he's going to call me about something, I know in the first six words when it's going to be a good call or a bad call. Hello, Carl. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Nothing good coming back from this conversation. I mean, hi, Carl, how's it going? Yep, I can hear some good stuff coming. So, um, yes, it's been a joy, and it, it, it will be, because we're not the finished article yet, with everything is uh, set up. We was waiting for the last 2% turn um, up. That was from Tom Felton. And that's been introduced graphically now, and he's done a fantastic job. Um, so it's a distributor we're looking at now. Uh, I won't say too much, but there are two, there's one very strong and a possible in the background. Um, so all we can do is hope. But Aaron is like a, a man that sells towels at the front door. He would knock at the door to get a sale and uh, he, he's knocking on doors. He's doing a fantastic job. And if there's anyone out there that's listening, because I know you've got like, 300,000 viewers, distributor wise, yeah, you want to come on board, just, just contact Steve. And then. Uh... <laughs> Colin then discussed with me about how the family are continuing their work in the community. And I also spoke to Aaron about the moment that Charlton Athletic paid tribute to Rob in such a fitting way. I've even been to prisons. I've been to Elmley, which is on the Isle of Sheppey. And at the time, I'd made a film with Ray Winston in it and Jamie called Cold Kiss. And it's only a shorty film, like 12, 15 minutes. And I took it in there to educate the guys that were about to leave at some point that prison. And I, and I said to them, we we use the um, uh, cold kiss as a vehicle to open discussion because it was a knife crime film and there's a bit of a twist to it 
So it's trying to engage the people that we're, we're talking to. I said to them, how many, how many people here like holidays? Yep, all the hands went up. How many people here like to make love to their partner? Yes, all the hands went up. How many people there love their children? All the hands went up. I said, I'd probably ask them 12, 15 things, and they were ticking every box. I said, okay, if you love all of these, don't come back here again. You know what you mustn't do. You know what you should do. I'm trying to give them advice on, on being positive. And the only way I can do that is to show them what they're missing. They might think, oh, I might have a laugh carrying a knife or punching someone in the head. But look on the other side of the coin. You've got one thing that you should not do. On the other side, there's 12 things that you'd like to do, but you can't now. You've been restricted. So we use that um, the film that we made, Cold Kiss, uh, directed by uh, Nurpal Bagol. When I went to a Charlton Athletics event, it was a dinner. And uh, I believe they were showing an, um, an anti-knife crime film that I worked on called Cold Kiss. And uh, I remember looking out into the pitch and they had left one of Rob's shirts on his season ticket seat and they just had a single spotlight on it. And I remember that just being such a powerful image. It, it does get featured in the documentary, but... Um, it just made me think, you know, there, there's such a community and there's such a, a family almost at Charlton. The final question that I asked Colin was what he wanted his son's legacy to be. It's, it's what I wanted, wanted it to be from the beginning. I wanted it to be a change in the way that people conduct themselves on our streets. OK, sometimes you hear about a, a domestic at home in a house. It's about the the knife carrier they they don't know what they're letting themselves in for because once they've made that mistake that was it that's their life finished so i've always wanted to use rob's demise to make a positive change in our society and unfortunately it's not been picked up on and i've got the criticism of the system and one of the criticisms i will make I'm not being political. I'm being real about talking about someone's manifesto. When Cameron won the election over the Labour Party, in his manifesto, he had a very strong trillion-word manifesto against antisocial behaviour, gun and knife crime and stuff. There's, there's one word in there that changed the complexion of all of it. When I started reading it, I thought, yes, we're going to make change now. We're going to get tough with knife carriers and stuff. Because not only are kids getting stabbed in the streets, there are police being stabbed. So we've got to protect everyone. And when I was reading this manifesto, there was one word that I went, uh-oh, red light, stop. He's talking about people that if they were caught carrying a knife. And then when the sentence carried on, he said, they may, not will. They may. a put into a custodial sentence not will i went no -uh. because anytime someone asked him a question he said well i did say may not will i want the person to say will now i don't want knife carriers go to court to be found guilty and put into a prison no i want them to be in a custodial place where it's mandatory if you carry a knife three months you're going to go to a custodial building, call it an old RIF building that they don't use anymore, the MOD, right? They go there and they go for a program. 
but there must be an exit program. Now, in those three months, hopefully they can break the ties with like the hoods and the mates and the gangs, right? Because some people can't get out of that sphere, that void, that vortex that they're in. They are in it. But if you can extract them, I think the Americans done it years ago. They went for the top guy that ran a gang, took him away, and the gang broke away. And I think I think it's done it in New York. So I think we, we need to be. I tell you what, I'm, I tell you what I'm really annoyed about. Theresa May, I'm not being political, but it, it was her statement, so I can only criticise her, not who she stands for, but her. She said, if anyone was caught, if anyone was caught murdering someone, we make sure they would get the punishment. I think, hang on, that's after the event. We should be saying, anyone that's caught carrying a knife will be taken away somewhere. It's, it's prevention. Not saying to someone, you've killed someone, we're going to send you to prison. Well, that's that's no good because those families are distraught the fact that their son or daughter have been killed. It's it's, it's reaction. I want proaction. I don't I don't want a reaction because that means someone's dead. Reaction is dead. Proaction means you can prevent a death possibly. And people have said to me, how many how many people do you think? How many lives do you think you're saved in these last 12, 14? I said, I don't know. It's non-quantifiable. You can't quantify it. But if there is one that has been saved, I'll be happy. But I don't know. Okay, it, it seems like um, Steve and I have spoken for half an hour, and it's probably been over two hours. What I want to say is just to thank Steve and True Crime Fix podcast for taking the time and the interest to make this possible. Um, I, I was so happy to do it, and I'm so pleased with Steve being a very nice character, and I, I, I wish him all the best and hope to speak to him again in the future. I want to thank Colin Knox and Aaron Truss for their time today, and please stay tuned to the True Crime Fix social media for when the documentary is going to be released. I also ask you to now go and listen to the collaborative episodes of Lady Justice and the Students' Verdict podcasts to hear the remainder of this story. For further information on the Rob Knox Foundation, please visit www.robknox.org That's www.robknox.org Before we close today, please take this opportunity to listen to the single Trying by Taxi Joe, a band which features one of Rob's closest friends, Joe Akers as the lead singer. If you like what you hear, check them out at www.taxijoe.co.uk That's www.taxijoe.co.uk I'll tell you where I've been It's a separate thing Getting lost in made-up memories I'll tell you where I've been And I'll tell you what I did Wouldn't change one bit change it anymore I could 
change what you think of it Well, every little thing could be this awful Every little thing is great I'm a best day, I'm a lion But there's a lot of other days When I'm just trying I'm just trying I'm just trying to be Show me who we are We play the part Quoting all our TV memories Show me who we are When we look up at the sky Saying someday I Give the moon some company We'll get there next time Well, every little thing could be this awful Every little thing is great On your best day, you're a lion But there's a lot of other days When we're just trying We're just Trying, we're just trying to be. So that's it for this week. Welcome to everyone who is trying this show for the first time. I hope that you've found this episode informative and want to try another of the cases that I've covered. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. 
The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. Also a reminder that this podcast is on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast i also have an instagram account so search true crime fix if you have any suggestions or feedback for this show please contact me at true crime fix podcast at gmail.com that's true crime fix podcast at gmail.com until next time stay safe look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone. <laughs>